Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1133 with a release and air date of Saturday, November 14th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio. We are North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1133 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL petitions the FCC for reconsideration of the order removing 3.4 GHz from amateur allocations. The ARRL is urging its members to join in strong opposition to the new FCC application fee proposal. The League has filed comments on the FCC draft World Radio Communication Conference recommendations. Hurricane Etta wasn't quite finished at week's end and Florida Aries groups mobilized to staff shelters. The Radio Society of Great Britain launches a new get-on-the-air drive for the Christmas holidays. A recently held Black Swan exercise offered an opportunity to demonstrate iPaws via HF Windlink. A 3,000-kilometer UHF-FM contact has taken place. We will tell you all about it. Tensions are high as yet another cable snaps at the ailing Arecibo Radio Observatory. And... Two firms in the UK are planning to offer countrywide 5G wireless service from flying drone platforms. We will tell you all about it in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT on what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, says that he views 2020 as a year that is still out in the future and takes a look at new scams that are on the internet. Australia's own Anno Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will tell us how he built a crystal radio with only three components. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill goes all the way back to 1908 and explores the very beginnings of amateur radio, including where did the acronym HAM come from? And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will talk about working safely on tower sidearms. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in cold, damp, rainy, overcast, raw, Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau from historic Armory Square in downtown Syracuse, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. Reporting from our news bureau in the broadcast capital of the world, this is N2WWW in Schenectady, New York. And reporting from our news bureau in Troy, New York, I'm Eric. KD2RJX. And reporting from New York's Catskill region, where our living Christmas tree is now decorated with hundreds of solar-powered LEDs, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, 
I'm Fred Fitty, November Fox, 2 Fox. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news this week, the ARRL has petitioned the FCC to reconsider its order removing the secondary amateur allocation at 3.3 to 3.5 gigahertz and requiring that amateur operations in the 3.45 to 3.5 gigahertz band cease on a date consistent with the first possible grant of flexible use authorizations to new users. The amateur services in this band long have been operated on a secondary allocation status, functionally similar to the de facto secondary status of Part 5 experimental licenses, whose continued operation was correctly approved in the same proceeding, ARRL told the FCC. Continued operation of amateur stations similarly should be permitted in the vacant portions of the spectrum that otherwise will go unused. ARRL said that public interest is in using the spectrum, not in leaving it vacant waiting for some future application. The Commission's decision in this proceeding undermines its long-standing policy objective to provide for and encourage more intensive use of spectrum, the ARRL said. The Commission's decision to remove the amateur secondary allocation throughout the 3300 to 3500 MHz band, ARRL said, appears to be based upon a mistaken conclusion that amateur secondary sharing of this spectrum is equivalent to the type of sharing that occurs with primary government and other primary commercial users, when in fact amateur secondary operations are quite different in usage, scope, and signal range. ARRL outlined a number of ways radio amateurs use the band. ARRL said that weak signal point-to-point amateur communication often applies new technologies, methodologies, and coding to improve the communications capability of equipment. Since the purpose of this type of activity is to hear or decode weak signals, operators use every possible means to avoid frequencies with other signals. Amateurs also operate radio beacons to study propagation, contributing to a better understanding of propagation in the 3.4 GHz range. Amateur beacons are fixed and low power, and therefore relatively easy to engineer into environments if other users initiate operations or to relocate or shut down if they cannot be engineered in. ARRL's petition also cited moon bounce as another aspect of amateur radio operation. This field of activity has led to a chain of improvements in antennas and equipment design in the 3.4 GHz spectrum, ARRL asserted, and is extremely unlikely to interfere with terrestrial services. Amateur satellites also could use the 3.4 to 3.41 GHz band with minimal likelihood to present interference concerns due to the signal's low power and narrow antenna beam widths. Plus, uplinks employ antennas that point skyward, further minimizing any possible area of concern. Other frequencies will not necessarily be available when needed, and this limitation threatens to constrain future experiments with space communication technologies as the number of amateur satellite experiments increases in number and purpose. The 3.3 to 3.5 GHz band also is used for digital high-speed data mesh networks and for amateur television repeaters. Design of and work with mesh networks has attracted an ongoing stream of computer literate youth to the amateur ranks, the league contended. The networks themselves are commonly employed for digital experimentation with a wide range of technologies and services, 
with a bedrock purpose of emergency readiness and availability during actual emergencies. ARRL noted that the greater the number of available band choices, the more likely that a suitable link could be engineered for a specific path. ARRL said that these and other amateur experimental activities make good use of the spectrum and should be permitted to continue on a secondary basis unless and until a new primary licensee is ready to operate in a geographic area where interference would result. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. The ARRL will file comments in firm opposition to an FCC proposal to impose a $50 fee on amateur radio license and application fees. With the November 16th comment deadline fast approaching, ARRL urges members to add their voices to ARRLs by filing opposition comments of their own. The FCC Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in MD Docket 20-270 appeared in the October 15th edition of the Federal Register and sets deadlines of November 16th to comment and November 30th to post reply comments, which are comments on comments already filed. ARRL has prepared a guide to filing comments with the FCC, which includes tips for preparing comments and step-by-step -step filing instructions. File comments on MD Docket 20-270 using the FCC's electronic comment filing system. Under the proposal, amateur radio licensees would pay a $50 fee for each amateur radio application for new licenses, license renewals, upgrades to existing licenses, and vanity call sign requests. The FCC also has proposed a $50 fee to obtain a printed copy of a license, excluded are applications for administrative updates such as changes of address, and annual regulatory fees. Amateur service licensees have been exempt from application fees for several years. The FCC proposal is contained in a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking in MD Docket 20-270, which was adopted to implement portions of the Repact Airwaves Yielding Better Access for Users of Modern Services Act of 2018, the so-called Raybombs Act, the act requires that the FCC switch from a congressionally mandated fee structure to a cost-based system of assessment. In this Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, the FCC proposed application fees for a broad range of services that use the FCC's universal licensing system, including the amateur radio service. The 2018 statute excludes the amateur service from annual regulatory fees, but not from application fees. The FCC proposal affects all FCC services and does not single out amateur radio. ARRL is encouraging members to file comments that stress amateur radio's contributions to the country and communities. ARRL's guide to filing comments including talking points that may be helpful in preparing comments. These stress amateur radio's role in volunteering communication support during disasters and emergencies and inspiring students to pursue education and careers in engineering, radio technology, and communications. As the FCC explained in its NPRM, 
Congress, through the Ray Bombs Act, is compelling regulatory agencies such as the FCC to recover from applicants the cost involved in filing and handling applications. In its notice of proposed rulemaking, the FCC encouraged licensees to update their own information online without charge. Many, if not most, amateur service applications may be handled via the largely automated universal license service. The Ray Bombs Act does not exempt filing fees in the amateur radio service, and the FCC stopped assessing fees for vanity call signs several years ago. The ARRL has submitted comments on two draft recommendations approved in October by the FCC's World Radio Communication Conference Advisory Committee. The comments focus on draft recommendations for World Radio Communication Conference 2023 Agenda Item 1.2. Agenda Item 1.2 will consider the identification of frequencies in the 3.3 to 3.4 GHz and the 10.0 to 10.5 GHz bands, among others, for international mobile telecommunications, including possible additional allocations to the mobile service on a primary basis, in accordance with the WRC 19 Resolution 245. The ARRL urged no change to the 3.3 to 3.4 GHz international secondary allocation to the Amateur Service and International Telecommunications Union Regions 2, the Americas, and Region 3, Oceania, and no change to the 10.0 to 10.5 GHz worldwide secondary amateur and amateur satellite allocation. Radio amateurs make substantial use of both bands, the ARRL said in its comments. They have conducted experiments and designed systems that protect primary users. The lack of interference complaints is evidence that they have been successful in doing so. In this manner, new spectrum horizons are explored and new techniques are developed that put the spectrum to productive use that otherwise would represent lost opportunities and waste of the natural resource. ARRL stressed that the World Radio Communication Conference Advisory Committee preliminary views make no suggestion that the international secondary allocations to the amateur service should not continue in both bands. ARRL said it wanted to reaffirm that these secondary allocations continued to be important and useful and that the WRC 23 should not consider changing either secondary allocation. Sharing between primary users and the secondary amateur radio users has been highly successful, and the U.S. domestic table reflected the international allocations until this year, ARRL said. In September, however, the FCC adopted an order to delete the secondary amateur and amateur satellite allocations in the 3.3 to 3.5 gigahertz band. Amateur radio operations may continue on a secondary basis, subject to decisions to be made on issues raised in a further notice of proposed rulemaking in the preceding WT Docket 19-348. ARRL maintained that amateur radio should remain secondary in the international allocations at 3.3 to 3.4 GHz until more is known about the technical characteristics of equipment that will be used by new services and the extent of geographic build-out. With regard to 10.0 to 10.5 GHz, ARRL noted it had been used for many amateur terrestrial experiments and tests that have helped to develop the technical characteristics of the band. The band also is heavily used throughout much of the world as the downlink for the Qatari Amateur Satellite SHAL-2. ARRL noted that radio amateurs utilizing the secondary spectrum at 3.3 to 3.4 GHz and 10.0 to 10.5 GHz have developed and honed their equipment and capabilities to share with the existing services. The amateur service has earned its reputation for making careful and non-preclusive use of its secondary allocations and will continue doing so, the ARRL concluded.
Therefore, we respectfully request that the amateur service and amateur satellite service be continued as secondary services in the above bands. Meanwhile, Ofcom in the UK has announced that it is ready to begin its auction of 120 MHz of bandwidth which it hopes to provide to 5G companies. This section of the band is located above the UK's amateur 9cm band at 3.40 to 3.41 GHz. The frequencies being offered for sale are between 3.6 GHz and 3.8 GHz, known as the mid-band region. It is also outside of the AIRU Region 1 9cm allocation of 3.4 to 3.475 GHz. The move in the UK differs from auctions in some other nations in that the UK sale will avoid the frequencies used by amateur radio. Bidding is to commence in the UK in January 2021 and Ofcom stated that applications will be received on the 2nd and 3rd of December. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Kristen McIntyre, K6WX of Fremont, California, has assumed the office of ARRL Pacific Division Director following the recent vacancy in the office. She will serve as director for the remainder of the current term, which expires on December 31, 2022. McIntyre was appointed as the division's vice director in 2018 and was unopposed as a candidate for the position in 2019. She has served as ARRL Technical Coordinator for the East Bay Section, first licensed in the late 1970s while a student at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. McIntyre also is licensed in Japan, her second home, as JI1IZZ. She's president of the Palo Alto Amateur Radio Club and is a senior software engineer at Apple. As part of the Get on the Air to Care campaign that the Radio Society of Great Britain has been running with the British National Health Service since April, it's launching a new focus for the Christmas holidays. With more in this story, we go to Steve Richards, G4HPE, who files this report from the headquarters of the Southgate Amateur Radio News. Called Get on the Air for Christmas and shared on social media with the hashtag GoTo4C, it will bring together a few activities that radio amateurs can participate in over the holiday period. It will run from Saturday the 19th of December to Saturday the 9th of January. Christmas can be a difficult time for many at the best of times, but with the extra restrictions due to COVID-19, the RSGB wants to make sure that every radio amateur feels part of a caring amateur radio community. The Society is kicking off the campaign by asking clubs that are planning special nets for Christmas Day and Boxing Day, or indeed any time over the holiday season, to send details to radcom at rsgb.org.uk so they can be published in the next Radcom issue, in the GB2RS broadcast news scripts and on the RSGB website. Other activities are being planned and further information will be added to the campaign webpage over the coming weeks. www.rsgb.org forward slash go to 4C. I'm going to spell that out for you. Golf, Oscar, Tango, Alpha, 4, the figure 4, Charlie. 
The SHARES HF program recently brought the FEMA Integrated Public Alert and Warning System, or IPAWS, and the WinLink HF email development team together to demonstrate that an IPAWS message could be delivered by HF in the event of an internet outage. IPAWS is FEMA's nationwide local alert system that provides authenticated emergency and life savings information to the public through mobile phones using wireless emergency alerts to radio and television via the emergency alert system and on NOAA weather radio. The recent Ohio Military Reserve Black Swan exercise provided the opportunity to demonstrate the ability to deliver an IPAWS message via HF. Ideally, a SHARES WinLink station would be at the location where the IPAWS message originated. Because this wasn't possible within the time and budget constraints, the Internet was used to get IPAWS messages from the point of origination to the SHARES headquarters program office in Arlington, Virginia, where custom software written by WinLink Development Team Chief Programmer Phil Sherrod, W4PHS, detected the iPaws message and forwarded it to WinLink HF email to exercise participants in Ohio. The messages were relayed automatically from FEMA through the Shares WinLink Hybrid HF radio email network with no human intervention. Due to COVID restrictions, no station personnel were present in the HQ Shares radio station building. Messages were then retrieved by SHARES operators over SHARES WinLink, and the messages handed off to radio amateurs, who manually relayed them to county and city emergency management agencies. Involved were the AWRL Amateur Radio Emergency Services, the AWRL National Traffic System, and amateurs involved through the government's OXCOM program. Exercise messages were sent each day at various times to demonstrate that the WinLink system gets the message through under varying radio conditions. The project was coordinated by Scott Johnson of Sawday Solutions, a FEMA contractor, and Ross Merlin, WA2WDT, the Shares HF Program Manager of the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency of the Department of Homeland Security. The SHARES Hybrid WinLink Radio Email Network is provided to the federal government at no cost by the Amateur Radio Safety Foundation, Incorporated. A giant in the field of low-band DXing and contesting, John Doubledeer, ON4UN and AA4OI of Belgium, became a silent key on November 9th. An ARRL life member, he was 79 and had been in failing health. In addition to his enthusiasm for operating, Devil Deer may be best known as the author of the popular book, ON4UN's Low Band DXing, published by ARRL as well as other books, including Ethics and Operating Procedures for the Radio Amateur, which he co-authored with Mark, ON4WW. The book is hosted on the International Amateur Radio Union Region 1 website. Ham radio and especially low band DXing were my father's lifelong passions, and always had a strong presence in our house, his daughter Marlene said in announcing her father's passing. Though I don't have a call sign, I very much feel a part of the big radio family, and always will. The Royal Union of Belgian Radio Amateurs President, Claude Van Pottelsberg de la Patier, ON7TK, said Devil Deer was a radio amateur in heart and soul who will always be remembered. We are grateful for his contribution to amateur radio and for his efforts within the UBA, he said. He was a member of the HF Committee from 1983 to 2016. In 1994, he became Provincial President of East Flanders. Two years later, 
he joined the National Board of the UBA, and from 1998 to 2007, he became chairman and was at the basis of many reforms within the UBA. Double Deer retired in 2016. According to his QRZ.com profile, he became interested in radio at the age of 11 and built his first single-tube transmitter the following year. His uncle, ON4GV, got him interested in amateur radio. Devil Deer was licensed in 1961 at the age of 20. He built much of his station gear and got into contesting, winning the UBA CW contest in 1962. At about the same time, he got interested in low-band operating. He worked 364 DX Century Club entities on 80 meters, lacking only North Korea. Belgium didn't gain access to 160 meters until 1987, and a few years later erected a full-size quarter-wave vertical for 160 meters. By 2018, he had 325 DXCC entities on 160 meters. He authored the 80-meter DX handbook for Ham Radio Magazine. ARRL approached him about writing a book on low-band operating, and the first edition of low-band DXing came out in 1987, and updated editions followed. He built a competitive multi-single contest station and operated in some 80 international contests, including the ARRL International DX, the CQ Worldwide DX, Stu Perry Top Band Challenge, and others. The walls in his ham shack hold more than 50 first-place contest plaques. He was elected to the CQ Contest Hall of Fame in 1997 and the CW DX Hall of Fame in 2007. He received the Yasme Excellence Award in 2013. Marlene Doubledare said she is planning a digital farewell ceremony on Saturday, November 21st. The family invites condolences via email. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This week in amateur radio. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Leo Laporte, the tech guy at exactly zero VU right there. You know, I have a lot of respect for the people who, radio engineers are really impressive. They, they, and they make sure they keep, you know, they're doing it. And the uh, problem is we're just amateurs. We're just kind of hanging out. <laughs> On this internet thing. One of these days. This is week one of year... Well, let's see. Let me think. 16. Week one of our 17th year as the tech guy. My 17th year as the tech guy. And here we are in the year 2020. Does that freak you out? Maybe if you're young, it doesn't. For me, it's a little odd, to be honest. It feels like uh, that is a year in the future. Like the, the, the distant future. <laughs> you know, 2001, a space odyssey, that was 19 years ago. That was the future. When I was a kid, we watched that. You know, that was 2010, the year we make contact. That was nine years ago. Even Blade Runner was last year. So I grew up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I grew up watching movies talking about the future, and this was the future. Actually, this is even like late, this is like distant future. 
And here we are in 2020. And I admit, after New Year's Eve, I uh, I was a little down in the mouth. And I thought, well, gee, my birthday didn't bother me that much. It's not getting older. It's it's uh, here we are in the future. And it's just not that different. <laughs> Where are the flying cars? Weren't we supposed to by now? We were... Elon said we'd have self-driving cars. We don't have any of that. By now, shouldn't we have more stuff, better stuff? Shouldn't everything be clean and shiny and, you know, uh, shouldn't we have brain implants? And I don't know. It just seems like we didn't really get all the things they prom- the science fiction authors promised us. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting fact, and I'm going to call it a fact. It's an opinion, but it's, I think it's kind of factual. It's an interesting fact, in my opinion, that a lot of what we do get in, uh, in this new technology world is influenced by what its creators read as a kid in science fiction. Science fiction authors have a lot of burden <laughs> for the future we're living in because those kids read, you know, whatever it was, Tom Swift or that was the flying car stuff or uh, the Jetsons or, you know, Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury. And they said, well, th- uh, that's, that's, I want to make that happen. You know, the one that's probably the most influential is a couple of guys, William Gibson, who was credited with the creator, uh, creating uh, something they call cyberpunk sci-fi, and Neil Stevenson, both active science fiction writers, two of my favorites, love them. Gibson wrote something called Neuromancer. Neil Stevenson wrote something called Snow Crash. Both had, uh, Neil called it a metaverse, a virtual reality world. Did you, If you saw Ready Player One, the movie, or read the book, same thing, where you would go, you would put strap on some gear, in uh, Neuromancer, you'd just plug it in the back of your head. Uh, I think it was the same in Snow Crash, some sort of mind-computer interface. And you would be in a new world, a virtual world, a world very different from our world, in which you could fly and do all sorts of crazy things, uh, the metaverse. And the, the funny thing is about all of that, that's, I think, essentially what people like Palmer Lucky, who started Oculus, then, of course, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook bought it and I think that's what they're, I think they're influenced by that. They say, well, yeah, yeah, we were supposed to have a, a metaverse by now. Do you remember, um, it's still around, a game called Second Life, a virtual reality world you would inhabit, you'd walk around on your computer and you could be a different person. They assigned you very kind of weird names. My uh, my assigned name was Pruneface Spatula. Didn't, you know, like it, but I kind of lived, I try to live up to it, you know, try, <laughs> try to become Pruneface Spatula. And uh, I think it's still around, but it's as you as with many um, cyber inventions, it's kind of degraded over time. It's become a more of an adult fantasy world than anything you'd want to hang out in, which is too bad because it was an interesting idea. But also, the technology wasn't there yet. Way back when, when I uh, used to work on a TV show called The Screensavers, it was uh, on a network, a, te- a cable network called Tech TV. This was back back in the late nineties. We had a 3D realm for our chat room. You could go in there. You'd have an avatar. You'd see other people. It'd be very visual. That's what we had. That's what, that's how it... Uh, and that was 20 years ago. Here we are in, uh, <laughs> in the future. And instead, we have Facebook, Twitter, and kind of, I have to say, a virtual reality experience that is very far from that of science fiction. It's not exactly convincing, right? Although... I have a 17-year-old, when his friends come over, they do every Friday night. The first thing they do, they, they beeline over to the, the 
HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift and the Oculus Quest, and they strap it on only three at a time because we only have three, and they'll play sometimes with each other, sometimes just in their own world. I watched last night, and uh, one of the kids, kids, they're 17, they're almost adults, was uh, in an office environment or something like that, or maybe it was a fast food restaurant. And the other kids who weren't wearing the visor were telling him, okay, okay, f- get down and flip that hamburger. In my day, you'd actually get a job at McDonald's and you'd actually flip a hamburger. And you know, it was a very realistic experience down to the point where you'd come home at night and smell like burger grease. They don't, they take off the visor and then nothing changed in their life. They also don't have a paycheck. It's an interesting, uh, it's not quite what we thought it would be. And yet there is, you know, it's a different world than it was 20 years ago. It was 16 years ago, 17 years ago when I started the Tech Guys show. It's changed a lot. And I have to say, part of the fun of doing this is is watching those changes. But it's slow, right? It's slow. So it's so gradual. It's like the seasons or even more gradual. It's, it's they, the old saying is the frog. If you put a frog in a pot of cold water and slowly bring it to a boil, it won't jump out because you'll, by the way, Apparently that's been tested. They do jump out. Thank goodness. I'm happy to hear that. But that's the metaphor. We're frogs in a pot of water that's slowly heating up. But it's so gradual we don't, you know. Eh. But when's the last time you went into a bank, right? Do, do you? Many of us older folks are still making phone calls. I don't. We'd use text. The kids don't. They, te- they message each other. They don't even use text. They use messaging platforms. And what's with all this TikTok? <laughs> we wanted flying cars and virtual reality. Instead, we got TikTok. We'll be back with more from our tech guy, Leo Laporte, right after we take this quick pause for stations along the network to identify. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. U.S. government has decided that if you want to export geospatial imagery software for the from the United States, you have to ex- apply for a license except when it's shipped to Canada. They're trying to put – what this means is they're trying to put limits on artificial intelligence software because they're afraid that the Chinese will get it, <laughs> really, is what they're saying. We've had, you know, it's interesting because it's a, it's kind of controversial. I mean, no, it's not controversial that we'd like to, you know, keep our own technology to ourselves, I guess. But this is more of the nature of kind of um, research and math. And uh, there are people in the U.S. who say, well, you can't, you can't keep a lid on that. And the thing they compare it to is a law that was in effect in the early part of the early days of the Internet that said you couldn't export strong crypto you know cryptography is the ability to scramble messages so no one can read them and we have thanks to the math it's not complicated we have a very good system for exchanging messages privately it's called public key cryptography and there are a number of different algorithms but they can be expressed simply u.s government said well we don't want any of this to get out (laughs) so we're going to ban export and what what the upshot was your browser in those days, it was Netscape. Couldn't uh, have strong cryptography built into it. 
if they wanted to sell it anywhere in, or give it away, I guess. I guess they were selling it in those days, give it away or sell it to anybody outside the U.S. So we all got what what they called 48-bit crypto, which isn't good crypto. It's What's the opposite of strong? Weak. <laughs> Easily broken. And it was a terrible idea because uh, the law, first of all, left loopholes. For instance, you could you couldn't export the bits, but you could you could write a book. So somebody wrote up the whole algorithm and printed it up in a book and shipped the book, and that could be sent. There was a guy who wore a T-shirt. It fit on a T-shirt. Who, <laughs> you know, I can travel the world with this T-shirt, and anybody who takes a picture of it can then understand how crypto works. You can't keep some information private, and I understand the desire to. You know, well, we got to keep you know, artificial intelligence private because, you know, we're good. We're the good guys. We're, we're never going to do anything bad with it. Mm -hmm. But they're the bad guys. So let's not let them know. You know, here's the, the, the truth of it. First of all, is these these are widely understood algorithms. And the Chinese are actually a little ahead of us. As far as we can tell, when it comes to things like face recognition, the China, you know, speech recognition, the Chinese are doing pretty well. Self-driving cars. They've, they've got very good engineers and the. Uh, and the government's pouring lots of money into this research. So uh, the upshot of this may be that we don't get the technology that would help us do a better job. Oh, whoops. Article in The uh, Guardian about Cambridge Analytica. Remember that that name, the company that uh, was taking uh, Facebook data, in particular uh, quizzes that you would take on Facebook and use it to profile you and then use those profiles to feed you propaganda. Well, now we're learning, in fact... It wasn't just Facebook, the 87 million Facebook profiles they got access to, but it was a global infrastructure of operations used to manipulate voters on, quote, <laughs> an industrial scale, an industrial scale all over the world. Elections in Malaysia, Kenya, Brazil. This trove of documents was leaked by a former employee at Cambridge Analytica. Apparently, it was the same documents we haven't seen him yet, but Robert Mueller subpoenaed in his investigation into the Russian interference in the election in 2016. The reason I bring it up is because it's still going on. Cambridge Analytica is gone, but there are a number of people who have taken their places, and the activities is on big time to influence elections. Turns out, who knew? We, got, we thought the Internet would be this great thing, and it is in so many ways. Great article last week. In the New York Times about why Twitter really, you know, for all its flaws, also transformed the decade. And, you know, there's a lot of good in the Internet. So I don't want to throw out, you know, everything just because there's some problems. But I think we've learned that social media in particular, things like Facebook and Twitter, can be used to disseminate propaganda in a form and a fashion that is unique, that is so powerful because they can be targeted They've they've wet and effectively they've weaponized social media. The Guardian headline says fresh leak from Cambridge Analytica shows global manipulation is out of control. Oh, that's good news. Just thought you'd like to know. Don't believe everything you read, I guess. That's part of the problem, right? Is we're used to we're kind of been trained to trust the printed word. But clearly that that's mis misguided. <laughs> and maybe we're just now catching up. I hope kids are learning. I think they are. I think kids are maybe a little more cynical than I'd like them to be, but at least they look at something on the Internet and they go, well, that, you know, that's just that's on the Internet. You know, we used to think, oh, if it's published in the New York Times, it's true. We Obviously, that's not the case. And it's even more ridiculous to say, well, if it's published on the Internet, it must be true. 
Not going well for magazines, though. Google has announced they're killing off digital magazines in their Google News product. If you subscribed, you know, Apple has the same thing in News Plus where you can subscribe for a flat fee and get hundreds of magazines. Google is doing the same thing, but they've decided, yeah, no. We're discontinuing the, they call it the print replica magazines in Google, Google News. We'll refund your subscription if you have a subscription. And you'll have access to any issues that you downloaded in the past. But eh, eh. I'm going to guess there's been kind of some chatter in the background from magazine publishers. They don't make hardly any money on Apple's news subscription service. Some of them said, I saw an article last week that said, yeah, we make no money on it, but it's good for us because people find us and maybe they'll subscribe to us, the paper version. Do you get, I'm curious, do you get paper magazines still? I used to. They would stack up pile up and they and they'd give you guilt too because you know your pile of national geographics and you know i didn't read those i gotta read the i gotta read the bottom of the pile before i read the top of the pile and pretty soon you stop reading any of the pile and then you just got a pile you can make some furniture out of it i guess mostly ends up in the basement right or the garage i i'm guessing magazine subscriptions print magazine subscriptions are way down i'm guessing and i wanted to warn you about a new scam just so that you know we talk a lot about how phishing emails target you, usually come from your bank or the IRS or maybe your your great aunt who's going to leave you a million dollars or somebody in Kenya. But there's, they're targeting you and they have links in the email. comes in texts too. In fact, I've been seeing a lot more of them in texts. I get texts that say, uh, this is Apple. Your iCloud account has been compromised. Click this link uh, and log in to verify these most recent logins. And you go, wow, Apple, that's good. I better do that. Thank you for being protecting me. But look, scrutinize the link. And this is important to understand. What you're looking at is the end of the link, not the beginning of the link. And you're looking at the dot whatever, dot com, dot net, dot info. These days, it could be dot a lot of things, right? A lot of things. And then the thing right before that dot is what you want to look at. If that's apple.com and the link takes you to apple.com, that's another problem because links can look like one thing, but not. But you click on them, they take you somewhere else. So look in the browser if you click a link. I'd recommend typing them in, but if you look at if you do click it, because that's easier, look at the browser and look at that end part, the end part. And the reason I say that is bad guys are now doing some interesting tricks to trick you. They'll say... The beginning part will say something like apple.com dot, and it'll be, you know, billing info. And they, now they're adding a date to it, the current date. So they might say apple.com dot billing info dot January 5th dot, and then something else. And that's the key. The apple.com is at the beginning. And the date and the billing info, things that look serious and, and you know informative are at the end. The end is where you're going. The last bit right before the dot, that's where you're going. And if you're going to billing info, January 5th dot info, that ain't Apple. But they, but people, they know people just look at They say, oh, I see Apple in there somewhere. Must be okay. So this is a, a little scammer trick now is registering name domains with dates in them which kind of further obscures especially if it's today's date oh we just you know this is your bank bank of america dash billing info january 5th dot com this is your bank (laughs) 
and uh, oh, there's something going on. Quick log in. That isn't your bank. Just I just wanted a little word of warning, just to help you, because really that's that's the biggest threat to people these days. You know, a lot of times people say, "Oh, I got an antivirus. I'm not worried." And it's not, you know, it's not the uh, the virus that you get on your floppy disk anymore. <laughs> it hasn't been for some time, has it? Has anybody seen any floppy disks? It's not the floppy disk anymore. It's uh, it's the email. It's the link. It's the website. And they do whatever they can to obscure the real source of that stuff. Phone calls, links in email, links in text messaging. Be very cautious about that. Anyway, I'm glad you were here. And I'm here. And I'll be here next week. And I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip? Into amateur radio history, I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. Okay, I knew it would happen. When I started this series, I expected three questions would be asked. When did ham radio start? Who was the first ham? And where did the word ham come from? To answer these questions, let's head back to the 19th century. Practical Wireless had its start in 1896, when Marconi first sent a signal over a distance of two miles. By 1899, he succeeded in sending a wireless message across the English Channel, a distance of 32 miles. The year 1899 also marks the first construction project, which appeared in American Electrician magazine. In December 1901, Marconi claimed to bridge the Atlantic, a feat which caught the world's attention and fueled the imagination of thousands of potential amateurs who took their first steps into wireless. In the early days, everything was spark. What exactly was spark? Well, sit down some summer night, listen to your AM or shortwave radio, and count the static crashes. Now, turn on the vacuum cleaner or an electric shaver and listen to your radio again. Hear that noise? In short, spark wireless was merely a form of controlled static. A high voltage inside a spark coil would jump across a gap which was coupled to an antenna. The spark was keyed on and off to transmit the code. The signal generated was extremely broad. A state-of-the-art 1906 spark transmitter operating on 400 meters, or 750 kilocycles, would actually generate a signal from about 250 meters, or 1200 kilocycles, to 550 meters, or 545 kilocycles. Receivers were no better. Before 1912, all systems were basically unamplified detectors. Tuners were primitive or non-existent. As might be expected, by today's standards, the early wireless stations were terribly inefficient. Transmitting ranges ranged from as little as 600 feet with a one-half-inch coil to perhaps 100 miles from a kilowatt station and a 15-inch spark coil. 
Ships at sea with 5 kilowatt transmitters might get as much as 500 miles maximum range over the ocean. It was into this world that the early amateurs ventured. Actually, if we were to concentrate on the years prior to 1908, it would be more appropriate to say experimenters rather than amateurs. For, in the first decade of wireless, there was little or no interest in personal communications with other stations. Rather, the concentration was on technical development, either in the interest of pure science or, more often than not, with an eye towards cashing in on this new medium. Experimenters were unorganized and, with the exception of those immediate stations with whom they ran tests, had no knowledge or interest in other pioneer stations. Any true amateurs prior to 1908 had been lost in prehistoric obscurity. By 1908, however, the face of wireless began to change. Technical developments had reached their first plateau, and a number of major competitors had formed the first wireless trust, called United Wireless. With a temporary truce in effect, equipment was now more readily available to the public. Along with this, new magazines such as Modern Electrics were formed with wireless communication as the primary thrust. The circulation of Modern Electrics jumped from 2,000 to over 30,000 in just two years. The year 1908 also saw the first handbook, Wireless Telegraph Construction for Amateurs. It is difficult to know exactly how many amateur stations were on the air in this completely unregulated laissez-faire era, but reliable estimates put the number of major stations, that is, those capable of communicating over 10 miles, at 600, while minor stations with a one- or two-mile range probably numbered 3,000 or more. Thus, if a year had to be arbitrarily chosen as the start of amateur radio, it would probably be 1908. As for the first amateur, that's a harder one. Without licensing, regulations, or written record, there will never be a definitive answer to this question. However, the name W.E.D. Stokes Jr. has come up. He was a founding member and the first president of the first amateur radio club, the Junior Wireless Club Limited of New York City. This organization was formed on January 2nd, 1909. Other founding members who might lay claim to the title first amateur were George Eltz, Frank King, and Fred Seymour. Later that same year, the Wireless Association of America and the Radio Club of Salt Lake City were created. By 1910, wireless clubs were springing up all over the country and the first call book, the Wireless Blue Book, was published. Since there were no regulations in this period, the call signs listed in the Blue Book were self-assigned, which brings us to our third question, where did the word ham come from? The most logical explanation is that commercial operators referred to the unlicensed and sometimes inexperienced amateurs as hams probably meaning ham-handed or ham-fist. Amateurs, however, took this derogatory term and turned it into a lasting and complimentary nickname. However, legend has it there was a phenomenal station on the air with five kilowatts who could be heard at all hours of the day and night at distances of over 500 miles. The station operator used his initials for his call sign, H-A-M. I don't know if this is the real story, but I've always liked this explanation best. Amateur radio continued to grow. By 1911, Modern Electrics had a circulation of 52,000, and there were 10,000 amateurs in the country. 
With thousands of stations on the air, both amateur and commercial, interference was becoming a serious problem, especially in maritime communication. Ships, because of their restricted antenna length, were limited to frequencies between 450 and 600 meters, or 666 to 500 kilocycles. As we have seen, one spark station could take up this entire spectrum. Thus, it was imperative that all stations cooperate and stand by when the others were transmitting. Sadly, this was often not the case. In addition to interference between amateurs and commercial stations, there was more interference and sometimes deliberate jamming between commercial stations of different companies. Prodded by the Navy, which was using inefficient and outdated equipment and thus suffering from excessive interference, the U.S. Congress was starting to take a serious look at wireless regulation. However, before they could take up proposed legislation, an incident happened that would quickly and dramatically alter the structure of the wireless spectrum. On April 15, 1912, the RMS Titanic struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic and sank. Thanks to wireless and the first SOS in history, 713 lives were saved. However, it has been argued that the number of survivors could have been doubled or even tripled if there were stronger wireless regulations in effect. We are going to keep a sharp eye on the Titanic and on a 22-year-old experimenter in Yonkers, New York, who would soon be making some major contributions to radio. So, until then, keep that spark gap adjusted and those raspy CQs coming. We'll catch you next time on the Ancient Amateur Archives. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. On the 16th of October 2020, there was a remarkable 3,000-plus kilometre contact made on the 70-centimetres band between South Africa and St. Helena in the South Atlantic. The contact, at 433 MHz, was made between Gary, Zulu Delta 7 Golf Whiskey Mike, on St. Helena Island, and Tom, Zulu Sierra 1 Tango Alpha, in South Africa. The distance was approximately 3,136 kilometers, and what was even more amazing was that the contact was made on FM. To put this remarkable contact on 70 SEMs into context, the 3,136 kilometer distance is equivalent to the path across the North Atlantic between Newfoundland and Ireland. It is believed that the mode of propagation was probably a marine duct. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. This is W2XBS with the propagation forecast for Friday, November 13th. Ted Cook, K7RA in Seattle, reports that the last time we experienced a day with no sunspots was October 13th. Prior to that, September 26th to October 8th, September 24th, and August 21st to September 22nd also had no sunspots. This indicates that cycle 25 is clearly underway and going strong. Average daily sunspot numbers over the November 5th to the 11th reporting week was 31.3, up from 21.3 over the previous seven days. Average daily solar flux increased from 81.6 to 90, 
the higher HF bands are beginning to open up. Geomagnetic indicators were very quiet, with average daily planetary A indices dropping from 6.3 to 4.4, and the middle latitude A indice, based on readings from a single magnetometer on Wallops Island in Virginia, went from 4.9 to 2.7. The predicted solar flux for the following seven days was revised downward on Thursday, November 12th. The predicted flux is 85 on November 13th to the 15th, 82 on the 16th, 80 on the 17th to the 19th, 78 on the 20th to the 25th, 80 and 82 on November 26th and 27th, and 86 on November 28th to December 5th. Now the AMSAT report, courtesy of Bruce Page, KK5DO. Six upcoming amateur satellites have coordinated frequencies with the International Amateur Radio Union, ORSAT-0 from Portland State Aerospace Society at Portland State University is a one-unit CubeSat. It'll have digital capabilities on 436.5 MHz and 2.425 GHz. Launch is planned for February. Tartan Artibius-1 from Carnegie Mellon University is a 1P pocket cube, a digital downlink on 437.17 MHz. The school also has Pi Cubed 1, a 1P pocket cube. Its digital downlink will be on 437.29 MHz. Both are set to launch in December. SATLLA2 from Ariel University is a 2P PicoSat with a digital downlink on 437.25 MHz and 2.401 GHz. The scheduled launch again is December. CSIRO-SAT-1 from University of South Australia and CSIRO is a three-unit CubeSat with a digital downlink on 437.315 MHz. The launch is set for next March. From Turkey is Grizu-263A, which will have a digipeter mode with forwarding of received messages on 437.19 MHz down, it's set to launch in December. Hackaday has reported that yet another one of the primary support cables at the Arcebo Observatory has snapped, nudging the troubled radio telescope closer to a potential disaster. The observatory's 300-meter reflective dish was already badly in need of repairs after spending 60 years exposed to the elements in Puerto Rico, but dwindling funds have made it difficult for engineers to keep up. Damage from 2017's Hurricane Mariah was still being repaired when a secondary support cable broke free and smashed through the dish back in August, leading to grave concerns over how much more abuse the structure can take before a catastrophic failure is inevitable. The situation is particularly dire because both of the failed cables were attached to the same tower. Each of the remaining cables is now supporting more weight than ever before, increasing the likelihood of another failure. Unless engineers can support the dish and ease the stress on these cables, the entire structure could be brought down by a domino effect, with each cable snapping in succession as the demands on them become too great. As a precaution, the site has been closed to all non-essential personnel, and to limit the risk to workers, drones are being used to evaluate the dish and cabling as engineers formulate plans to stabilize the structure until replacement cables arrive. Fortunately, they have something of a head start. 
Back in September, the University of Central Florida, which manages the Arcebo Observatory, contacted several firms to strategize ways they could address the previously failed cable and the damage it caused. Those plans have now been pushed up in response to this latest setback. Unfortunately, there's still a question of funding. There were fears that the observatory would have to be shuttered after Hurricane Mariah hit simply because there wasn't enough money in the budget to perform the relatively minor repairs necessary. The University of Central Florida stepped in and provided the funding necessary to keep the observatory online in 2018. But they may need to lean on their partner, the National Science Foundation, to help cover the repair bill they've run up since then. The Arcebo Observatory is a unique installation, and its destruction would be an incredible blow for the scientific community. Researchers were already struggling with the prospect of repairs, putting the powerful radio telescope out of commission for a year or more. But now it seems there's a very real possibility the observatory may be lost. Here's hoping that teams on the ground can safely stabilize the iconic instrument so it can continue exploring deep space for years to come. Back on United Nations Day, October 24th, the Alexanderson Alternator Station, SAQ in Sweden, transmitted a message on 17.2 kilohertz, urging unity in the face of the pandemic. The message transcript reads as follows. CQ, 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 D-E-S-A-Q, S-A-Q. This is Grimmington Radio, S-A-Q, in a transmission using the Alexanderson 200,000-watt alternator on 17.2 kilohertz. The global pandemic challenges people and nations to unite to minimize the negative consequences for individuals and societies, and to uphold the advancements in public health made in recent decades. Good health and well-being is a prerequisite for a peaceful and sustainable global development, and health equity cannot be achieved without peace and human security. The message was signed by Anders Tegnell, chief epidemiologist of Sweden's public health agency, SAQ notes that QSL information is on the Alexanderson Alternator website. SAQ received some 400 listener reports from all over the world, with just 20 reporting that they were unable to copy the message. As usual, we have received very many reports from the North, Central, and Eastern Europe, the SAQ reports said. We also have received reports from the U.S. and some from Russia and Japan. The farthest reports come from Tasmania, south of Melbourne, approximately 16,000 kilometers, or 10,000 miles, from Gimrimitan, Sweden. The entire transmission event was also broadcast on the SAQ YouTube channel with some technical problems experienced. Following the United Nations Day transmission, singer Anna Louise Ekman performed a concert in the transmitter hall with songs in Swedish and Italian. She was accompanied by her pianist, Oscar Johansson, and her sister, violinist Asa Grimberg. The International Amateur Radio Union Region 2 Executive Committee has named Carlos A. Santamaria, CO2JC, as the new Region 2 Emergency Coordinator. He succeeds Cesar P.O. Santos, HR2P, who retired after 12 years of service. Santa Maria has extensive experience serving as the Federation de Radio Aficionados de Cuba National Emergency Network Coordinator. He oversaw the network's activities during hurricanes and earthquakes, maintaining contact with emergency coordinators in other Caribbean countries to protect the emergency frequencies. 
He also advises the Cuban headquarters of the United Nations Organization on Emergency Communications During Disasters. The IARU Region 2 Executive Committee credited Santos' success in dealing with emergency committees and telecom authorities. The Executive Committee called him a key player in ensuring that Central America benefited from an ITU pilot plan for an operational windling system in the region, including the provision of equipment, installation, and training. The Executive Committee also credited Santos with presenting emergency communications workshops. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. Foundations of Amateur Radio The idea of building a crystal radio occurred to me a little while ago. I committed to building one, supplies permitting, before the end of the year. I can report that I now have a crystal radio. It works, as in, I can hear a local AM broadcast station. And it took a grand total of three components, costing a whopping two and a half bucks. Before I get into it, this isn't glorious AM stereo, or even glorious AM mono, this is scratchy, discernible, unfiltered, temperamental radio. But I built it myself from scratch, and it worked first time. Before I start describing what I did and how, I'm letting you know in advance that I'm not going to tell you which specific components to buy, since your electronic store is not likely to have the same components, which would make it hard for you to figure out what would be a solid alternative if you didn't understand the how and the why of it all. So, disclaimer out of the way, my aim was to build a crystal radio using off-the-shelf components, without needing to steal a razor blade, shave a cat, sharpen a pencil, or any number of other weird contraptions. Not that those aren't potentially interesting as life pursuits, though the cats I know might object strongly, I wanted this to be about learning how this thing actually works, without distraction. I set about finding a capacitor and an inductor combination that made a resonant circuit, with a frequency range that falls within the AM broadcast band. If you recall, you can make a high-pass filter from either a capacitor or an inductor. Similarly, you can make a low-pass filter from either component. If you line up their characteristics just so, you'll end up with a band-pass filter that lets the AM broadcast band pass through. Now notice that I said range. That means that there needs to be something that you can adjust. In our case, you can either adjust the inductor or the capacitor. Technically, you could do both. My electronic store doesn't have variable inductors, so I opted for a variable capacitor. The challenge becomes, which variable capacitor do you select with which inductor? I used a spreadsheet to show what the bottom and top range for each capacitor would be if combined with each inductor. This gave me a table showing a couple of combinations that gave me a range of resonance inside the AM band. The formula you're looking for is the resonant frequency for a parallel LC circuit. Take the inductance, multiply that by the capacitance. Then take the square root, multiply it by pi and again by 2. Then take the inverse and you'll have the resonant frequency. 
You'll need to pay attention to microhenry versus millihenry and picofarad versus nanofarad, and you'll also need to confirm that you've got kilohertz, megahertz, or just hertz at the other end. Otherwise, you'll end up several orders of magnitude in the wrong spot. If you do all that, you'll likely end up with a couple of combinations of inductor and capacitor that will do what you want. Then, when you head to the electronic store, you'll find that the stock you're looking for is end of life and that the colour coding on them isn't right. But if you manage to navigate that swamp, you'll come out the other end with a few parts in your hands. Final bit you need is a diode. It acts as a so-called envelope detector. I'm not getting into it here, I'll leave that for another time, but a Schottky or germanium diode is likely going to give you the best results for this experiment. Wiring this contraption is pretty trivial. Start with joining the inductor and capacitor to each other in parallel. They'll act as the LC circuit. You can change the resonance by tweaking the variable capacitor. Then attach a long antenna wire to one end and an earth wire to the other end. Finally, connect the diode and an amplified loudspeaker in series between the LC antenna end and the LC earth end, and your radio is done. For my experiment, the loudspeaker has a built-in amplifier. It's an external PC speaker with a power supply. I also had to keep my hand on the antenna to create enough signal, since essentially I'm a large body of water, great for being a surrogate antenna. The unexpected thrill of hearing a local announcer coming through into my shack from three components lying on my desk was worth the anticipation. Highly recommended. What are you waiting for? I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. This week in Amateur Radio is holding open auditions for news anchors for the weekly national worldwide amateur radio news service. If you have a good radio voice and can reliably read provided news copy, we are looking for you. This, of course, is an all-volunteer position, and amateur radio license is not required. You must have a high-quality microphone, headset mics are not used, and be familiar with audio editing software to record and edit your finished news stories before uploading. If you would like to try out for a weekly or bi-weekly anchor position with North America's premier amateur radio news on air and podcast, please send an email to our producer, George, W2XBS. You can include a sample MP3 of yourself reading news copies sent as an attachment to W2XBS77 at gmail.com. That's whiskey, the number two, X-Ray Bravo Sierra 77 at gmail.com. Be sure and use Anchor Audition in the subject line. Please include your phone number and a good window of time for a callback to discuss your submission and our operating logistics to see if This Week in Amateur Radio is a good fit for you. We hope to hear from you soon. Here's a listing of upcoming ARRL Learning Network webinars. Visit the ARRL Learning Network website to register for upcoming sessions and to view previously recorded sessions. The schedule is subject to change. Amateur Radio's role at the Boston Marathon bombing, hosted by Steve Schwarm, W3EVE. Amateur Radio has played a significant role in public service communications for the Boston Marathon for several decades. That role was put to the test in 2013 when two bombs were exploded near the finish line. This presentation will describe the role that ham radio played at the marathon and how that role changed due to the bombing. This webinar is scheduled for Tuesday, December 8th, 2020, at 10 a.m. PST. That's 1 p.m. EST or 1800 UTC.
Learn and have fun with Morse code, co-hosted by Howard Bernstein, WB2UZE, and Jim Kreitz, W6JIM. Morse code, or CW, is a popular ham radio operating mode. Learning CW does not have to be an arduous or lonely experience. Learn, practice, and enjoy CW with the methods used by the Long Island CW Club. This webinar is scheduled from Thursday, December 17th, 2020, at 5 p.m. PST, that's 8 p.m. EST, or 0100 UTC on Friday, December 18th. Software-defined radio came on the hacker scene in a big way less than a decade ago thanks to the discovery that a small USB-based TV tuner dongle could be used for receiving all kinds of radio transmissions. Two popular projects from that era are tracking nearby airplanes and boats in real time. Of course, these projects rely on different frequencies and protocols, but if you live in a major port city like Ian, then his project that combines both into a single-user interface might be of interest. This project uses an RTL-SDR dongle for the marine traffic portion of the project, but steps up to a FlightAware Pro dongle for receiving telemetry from airplanes. Two separate antennas are needed for this, and all of the information is gathered and handled by a pair of Raspberry PIs. The PIs communicate with various marine and air traffic databases, as well as handles the custom user interface that knits both sets of information together. This interface was custom built from a previous project of his and was repurposed slightly to fit the needs of this one. This is a great project that goes into a lot of interesting detail about how the web traffic moves and how the UI works. So even if you're not into software-defined radio, it might be worth a look. However, it's also worth noting that it hasn't been easier to set up a system like this thanks to the abundance and low price of RTL-SDR dongles and the software tools that make setting them up a breeze. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. The only thing that worries me more than climbing to 400 feet on a July night with thunderstorms visible in the distance is climbing to 200 feet and then making a turn to the right and moving away from the tower 6 feet on a sidearm. Just the thought of making a sharp turn on a highway with no exits just doesn't seem natural. But for a climber, it's a necessary part of the job. For the safety-oriented climber, we work to minimize the risk of death. Let's be honest here. If something goes very wrong on a sidearm, one of three things will happen. Death, poopy diapers, or serious injury. Let's examine some potential truths about sidearms. For openers, if the sidearm was about to fall off the tower, it would be visibly obvious just by looking at its mounting hardware most of the time. Also, if that structure survived the past year's worth of ice storms, 90 mile an hour winds, or worse, without breaking, chances are it'll support my fat butt for a short amount of time just fine, too. 
Since tower climbers usually own lots of straps, belts, and ropes, we have the ability to choose how we want to protect ourselves when working on sidearms. Basically, we can choose to secure ourselves to the tower or if we want to secure ourselves to the sidearm at all. Depending upon the width of the tower, the design of the sidearm will vary. On a one to two foot sidearm, many times I stay below it and stay strapped to the tower. I use two or three devices and lean out away from the tower so I'm just below the antenna I'm working on. If the antenna is too heavy to handle this way, I can secure it from above or work on it from above. If the sidearm is a big six foot mother, I prefer to climb out onto it to get my work done. What I do is use a very light but very strong rescue strap. It's about 10 feet long and strong enough to pull a car out of a ditch, yet light enough to carry in a big pocket. I attach it with two beaners about 5 feet above the sidearm on that side of the tower. The other end of the strap goes to my belt. I slide out onto the sidearm and often never strap onto it. Depending upon the width of the sidearm and the weight of the antenna I'm working on, I may never strap onto the sidearm at all. This way, if the sidearm breaks off the tower, I'll drop to the end of the strap and stop while the sidearm can fall away. If I was strapped to the sidearm too, my strap would have to catch all of that weight, which sounds like a bad idea to me. Again, each installation is different. One needs to know the age of the structure and look how well maintained it is and decide how to deal with safety based on a first-hand inspection of the sidearm. There is not much in nature that would put an equivalent weight load at the end of a sidearm equal to my 160 pound body weight. So a climber needs to be very aware of the risks and safety specs of his gear, not to mention the condition of the tower. The professional climber recognizes the danger and works to minimize the risk without losing lots of time and with minimal added weight. If you want to imagine a job I don't ever want is the guy that slides down the guy wires with the bucket of grease smearing a coating from end to end. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. As we have previously reported, here in the UK, the regulator Ofcom is currently consulting on a proposal to ensure that all radio frequency licensees comply with electromagnetic radiation public exposure limits. This includes radio amateurs, as well as cellular phone providers and commercial users of the radio spectrum. The limits have been advised by the International Commission on Non-Ionising Radiation Protection, an independent international organisation. Compliance would require radio amateurs to make assessments of their electromagnetic field and keep measurements. The Radio Society of Great Britain is currently working on detailed comments and suggested amendments to the second Ofcom EMF consultation. The Society is also preparing guidance to help all UK radio amateurs to assess compliance and keep the necessary records. The first consultation ended in June 2020 and received responses from many Spectrum users, including the RSGB and 254 radio amateurs. The second consultation is about the implementation of the recommendations. Ofcom have been trialling a calculator in the form of a spreadsheet intended as a basic tool to help estimate your EMF. If the results of this calculation show compliance within the limits, it is only necessary for Radio Hams to keep the calculation as a record. The RSGB is working on a modified version of the spreadsheet, which more carefully takes into account effective radiated power based on known station parameters such as transmitter power, cable type and length, 
transmission mode, transmit receive duty cycle and the antenna type. The RSGB is currently modelling a wide range of typical amateur radio antennas and it appears that most antenna types within the scope of the average radio ham will be inherently or normally compliant with the field limits. The RSGB says it will modify the good RF housekeeping section of the exam syllabus to include awareness of and how to manage EMF issues. The Fall 2020 Nationwide Red Cross Emergency Communications Drill will take place on Saturday, November 4th, in conjunction with the AWRL Amateur Radio Services Group. The focus of the exercise is sending messages from local sites to a group of divisional clearinghouses to simulate and demonstrate amateur radio's capability to relay information in emergencies and disasters. The drill will get underway at 0900 and continue until 1800 local time in each time zone. The scenario is a major weather event that has caused outages and created hazardous conditions across the country. The drill will use WindLink as a primary method of delivering pre-formatted messages. The goal is to encourage more operators to become familiar with WindLink and its message templates, primarily ARC-213. This format permits sending standardized messages. The drill aims to bring as many radio amateurs as possible up to the basic level of WindLink proficiency. A series of WindLink workshops is held each Thursday at 0100 UTC on Zoom. Join the SCC Aries group for announcements and discussions. Include name and call sign when registering. Windlink proficiency goals have been drafted, a Windlink technical support team has been formed, and metrics for drill success have been developed. The proficiency goals are established as a training guideline and references online training resources. Many hams new to Windlink may find these resources helpful. Several hundred radio amateurs already have signed up for the event. This event is open to all radio amateurs. The C5 Committee of the International Amateur Radio Union in Region 1 is responsible for matters concerning VHF, UHF and microwave amateur radio activity. Recently, the committee met in a virtual conference and a report on the recommendations discussed is available in the latest edition of the free Region 1 VHF-UHF microwave newsletter. The conference was held virtually for the first time over the period October the 11th to the 16th, 2020. For the delegates, this new experience was rather successful. The C5 committee held three sessions of about two and a half hours each. They discussed 35 papers and made 17 recommendations. Along with hellos and goodbyes from the incoming and outgoing committee chairs, the newsletter gives a lot of detail concerning the matters discussed. Amongst the topics, Barry Lewis, Golf 4 Sierra Juliet Hotel, spoke about the threats to the 23cm amateur band and called for national societies to raise the profile of amateur radio with their national regulatory bodies and be ready to react should there be moves to downgrade the amateur service. There were a number of proposed changes to contest rules, particularly the banning of secondary methods to obtain contest QSO exchange details, for example by using a web SDR, a DX cluster or an internet chat platform. The newsletter also contains details of weak signal activity mode contests and opening up band segments for wide band experimentation using modes as yet unknown. Changes to the 50 MHz band plan were also discussed. We pause for stations along the network to identify. 
We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. Amateur Radio will be on board early next year when the first nanosatellite designed, built, and tested independently in a university setting in Israel heads to the International Space Station. The research satellite, known as TAUSAT-1, is in Japan undergoing pre-flight testing before it is taken to the U.S. for its ride on a resupply spacecraft to the ISS next year. It is designed to fly in low-Earth orbit, measuring cosmic radiation in space and conducting other experiments. The small satellite, which is the creation of the new nanosatellite center in Tel Aviv, will orbit the Earth every 90 minutes at a speed of 27,600 kilometers or 17,150 miles per hour. It will transmit its data to a satellite station on the roof of the campus's engineering building each time it makes a pass over Israel. Much of that data will facilitate the design of improved protection for astronauts and space systems. According to an article in the Times of Israel, the satellite will also be accessible to amateur radio operators around the world before it burns up in the atmosphere. Its orbit is expected to last several months before decaying. The International Amateur Radio Union Region 2 Executive Committee has named Carlos A. Santamaria CO2JC as the new Region 2 Emergency Coordinator. He succeeds Cesar P.O. Santos, HR2P, who retired after 12 years of service. Santa Maria has extensive experience serving as the Federation de Radio Aficionados de Cuba National Emergency Network Coordinator. He oversaw the network's activities during hurricanes and earthquakes, maintaining contact with emergency coordinators in other Caribbean countries to protect the emergency frequencies. He also advises the Cuban headquarters of the United Nations Organization on Emergency Communications During Disasters. The IARU Region 2 Executive Committee credited Santos' success in dealing with emergency committees and telecom authorities. The Executive Committee called him a key player in ensuring that Central America benefited from an ITU pilot plan for an operational windling system in the region, including the provision of equipment, installation, and training. The Executive Committee also credited Santos with presenting emergency communications workshops. And finally this week, two firms in the United Kingdom are planning to provide countrywide 5G wireless services from a flying drone platform. With more details on this story, we go to Steve Richards, G4HPE, reporting from the headquarters of the new Southgate Amateur Radio News Service. Two UK firms have announced plans to beam 5G signals to the public via drones that stay airborne for nine days at a time. They want to use the antenna-equipped aircraft powered by hydrogen to deliver high-speed connectivity to wide areas. The two companies, Stratospheric Platforms and Cambridge Consultants, say they could cover the whole of the UK with about 60 drones. But telecom analysts are questioning whether the economic case for this scheme is quite as simple as it sounds. 
The Cambridge-based companies say they would run the service in partnership with existing mobile operators. They are already backed by Deutsche Telekom, which hopes to trial the technology in rural southern Germany in 2024. Cambridge Consultants designed the antenna for the stratospheric platform's aircraft, which is proposed to fly at an altitude of 20,000 metres. They say they have successfully tested beaming a lower bandwidth signal from a plane flying at a lower height. But so far, the drone required is still on the drawing board and needs to be tested with an emission-free hydrogen fuel cell and a 5G antenna on board. Well, Google is running a similar project called Project Loon to bring wireless broadband to remote places using solar-powered high-altitude balloons. But the chief executive of stratospheric platforms, Richard Deakin, says that using hydrogen fuel cells is a superior solution. He said, This is a very high-density energy source, which enables us to produce a huge amount of power for long periods of time. And he added that each drone would cover an area of 140 kilometres in diameter, that's about 87 miles, beneath them. And users would get download speeds of about 100 megabits per second, allowing them to download a typical 4 gigabyte movie in under 6 minutes. Terrestrial masts are extremely expensive to install, said Mr Deakin. With our system, each aircraft will replace at least 200 masts. But industry watchers say that safety issues need to be resolved. John Delaney from research firm IDC commented that the skies are very heavily regulated. Getting approval for a network of constantly flying drones in the stratosphere within three or four years would be difficult. By 2024, UK mobile operators should have built much of their 5G networks, and some commentators say that it is unrealistic to expect that this infrastructure would be displaced by a network of drones. But they could be useful in hard-to-reach areas, for instance over large expanses of water, such as shipping lanes, or for quickly linking machines together, for example autonomous driverless trucks moving in and out of a mine. And there could be a role for a technology like this, which lets you get coverage up and running very quickly in very remote areas, perhaps in the aftermath of disasters. The biggest challenge could be funding. Despite Deutsche Telekom's involvement, the two British firms need more money if they are to offer connectivity from the stratosphere within four years. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater K2RHI on 146.940 MHz, serving the tri-cities of New York State's capital region from Mount Refinesk in Brunswick, New York. Many of the news and information items heard on This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League, the ARRL Letter, the ARRL Audio News, the Southgate Amateur Radio News Service, Southgate Vibes, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain and Ofcom, the SARL, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia, the Amateur Radio Newsline, the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet. 
This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. This Week in Amateur Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Joe Ezel, KE5CLJ, saying 73 until next week.